Father, I just pray that uh, you would open our eyes to your grace and your majesty, your wonderful compassion and your love. Uh, we pray that our hearts would receive blessing from you tonight. Help us, Lord, to understand what you have done and help us to understand what you are like. And may we put our trust in Jesus. And we ask these things in his name. Amen. Um, Isaiah says, How beautiful on the mountain are the feet of those who bring good news, who, bring, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation. So, I don't know if you see my nice shoes. <laughs> but I hope, <laughs> I have good news for you tonight. I will proclaim the peace that is proclaimed here in Isaiah. But it will start with um, something that may be close to home for some. Uh, it may um, uh, bring up pain for you. And if that's the case, uh, I just want to remind you that um, all of our pain uh, is dealt with in the Lord Jesus Christ. But half of all marriages end in divorce, and some of them will end because of unfaithfulness. And sometimes it happens where uh, a partner hears the phone ding and it's a text message and they look and they start asking questions. The text might say something like, I love you more than ever, can't wait till we are together again. And the spouse is wondering, who is this? And why are they texting my spouse? What's going on here? And so there's questions, and there's pain, and there's investigation. And then finally, there's the revelation that there's been an affair, that one of the two has been unfaithful. And it's devastating. It's absolutely devastating. Excruciating pain. But my question is, when you've got a relationship that is so broken like that, can it be put back together again? And what would it take? What would it take for a marriage that's been broken apart by unfaithfulness to be restored together again. Well, believe it or not, this section in Isaiah answers that. Only it's not a marriage between a husband and his wife, but it's a marriage between God and his people. The relationship is broken because one has been unfaithful. Could it ever be restored? What would it take to repair this marriage between God and his people? Andrew Pierce uh, introduced us to Isaiah last week, and we're just on this whirlwind tour. We're trying to cover uh, 26 
chapters in four weeks. So all we can really do is fly over the top and get a bit of an overview, but I hope it helps. I hope what you will do is actually go home and read it, read the whole lot, or read my section tonight, which is uh, Isaiah 44 to 55. And I hope that this overview gives you a bit of an understanding of what you're reading there. Remember that Isaiah was a prophet who was 700 years before Jesus came. God had created this special relationship with the people of Israel. So he started with a guy called Abraham and he said, I'm going to give you so many descendants, it's going to be a great nation. And that happened. And they found themselves in Egypt and they were in slavery in Egypt. And God rescued them by taking them out through the Red Sea, this amazing miracle And he led them into the promised land and he drove out the nations that were living there and he gave the land to these people, Israel. And he said, I will be your God and you will be my people. And all the way through the Old Testament and into the New Testament, God describes this relationship with his people like a marriage. I will be like a husband to them and they will be like his bride. But here in Isaiah, the marriage is in big trouble. Throughout their history, God had been entirely faithful to Israel. But they were altogether constantly unfaithful to God. What was wrong? Well, one of the big issues was their idol worship. They worshipped idols. The Lord God was to be their one and only God, but they in their wickedness gave themselves to idols. And there's this really amazing picture uh, in Isaiah 44. I won't read it all because it's quite a long passage, but I'll paraphrase it. And, And God is saying, look at the folly of idol worship. He says, someone cuts down a tree And half of it they cut up and they use to build a fire. And they bake their bread and you roast your meat and you keep yourself warm by the fire. And then with the other half, a carpenter comes along and measures it up and marks it and chisels out a statue. And God says he makes a god, his idol. He bows down to it and worships He prays to it and says, save me, you are my God. You can see why God is angry. He was rejected for another. And who was this other that he was rejected for? A block of wood? But that was only only the start of a long list of transgressions that Israel had on their charge sheet. Which is why when we come to the passage that was read for us, Isaiah 54, God says in verse 8, In a surge of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment. And in verse 7, for a brief moment, I abandoned you. God rejected Israel because Israel rejected God. And he would judge, he would judge their wickedness by causing another nation to come in and take them, take them captive 
into exile and into slavery again. And God told them clearly the reason why you are going into exile, the reason why you are being judged is because of your sin. Because of your transgressions, he says in chapter 50. But I ask again, what would it take to restore the relationship between Israel and God? And there is such good news here tonight. Let's read from Isaiah 54, verse 6. He says, The Lord will call you back as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit, a wife who married young only to be rejected, says your God. For a brief moment I abandoned you, but with deep compassion I will bring you back. In a surge of anger I hid my, my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. In this long section of Isaiah that we're looking at today, uh, Isaiah 49 to 55, it details just how God will show that deep compassion and restore Israel to himself. And it's not just how he will show great compassion, but who will show that great compassion. We learnt last week from Andrew that the the thing that God was going to do was comfort Israel. Remember that? Comfort. Comfort my people, says the Lord. And that he himself was going to come and comfort. And that's repeated in our passages tonight. In, in chapter 52, it says, Burst into songs of joy together, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. But then in a, a couple of verses after that, God introduces a new character. And he says, see my servant. And so as we uh, put the binoculars up to look more closely at who this one is, the one that comes into, into focus is one that is described as the servant. The main point of our passages tonight is that God will save a sinful, unrighteous Israel through the work of a righteous, obedient servant. And we're going to see seven characteristics of this servant. And to make it easy for you to remember, they all start with the letter C. You'll see them in the outline there. And so we've already covered the first one, and that is the word comforter. The servant will be the comforter. God himself, the servant, the comforter. Then secondly, this servant of the Lord was called by God. Called. And we'll go back to Isaiah 49 for this one. Isaiah 49 and verse 1. He says, listen, listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. The arrival of the servant was no random occurrence. He was all part of God's plan right from the beginning. And the plan was that this servant would do three things. Verse 6, Isaiah 49, verse 6. 
God says, it's too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and to bring those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So three things that this servant is going to do. The first thing, he's going to bring his people, the Israelites, back into fellowship with God. Secondly, he's going to be a light for the Gentiles. He's going to call all nations into fellowship with God. And the third thing, he is going to take God's glory and it is going to be displayed to the ends of the earth. 49 verse 3, he said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I will display my splendor. You see, God's ultimate purpose is for the earth to be filled with the glory of God. He wants everyone to know him. He wants us to know him. He wants all the nations to know him. He wants all generations to know him. He wants us to know how good he is, how holy he is. He wants us to know his strength. He wants us to know his love. He wants us to know his compassion. That's exactly what the nation of Israel were supposed to do. They were supposed to shine forth God's glory to the ends of the earth. But they couldn't. They were unable. They were unwilling because of their sin. But in God's eternal plan, his servant would succeed where others have failed. He would be a light for all nations. And that means that we tonight need to listen up. We need to listen up because we are the distant nations. The gospel is coming to us. God's servant is not just for the people of Israel. God's servant is for us. Our salvation also comes through the servant. Number three, the, the, the servant of the Lord would be crushed. We're going to go over to Isaiah 53 for most of this. The servant would be crushed. Though we are told that God himself would come to save his people, Isaiah says we are not to look for a servant that is arrayed with the majesty of the Lord. You're not going to see a king arrive. In fact, we're told this servant would appear totally insignificant. He's going to be more like a tender shoot than a sprawling tree in Isaiah 53 verse 2. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem like something that you throw out with the rubbish, something that's discarded, something that you look down upon. The servant of the Lord was called by the throne of heaven and yet he would not appear as a king. Instead, he would appear as a man, an ordinary man who would know the pain and the suffering that ordinary men and women know. 
But it doesn't stop there. If you keep reading through Isaiah 53, just scan through it, he was pierced. He was crushed. He was punished. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. He was taken away. He was ultimately slaughtered, led like a lamb to the slaughter. He was cut off from the land of the living. This servant of the Lord was called to suffer and to be crushed and to die. Now, the fourth C word is the word carried. Carried. And it's abundantly clear why he will be crushed. Read from verse 4, Isaiah 53, verse 4. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The weight the weight of sin that hangs heavily on the shoulders of sinful men and women is placed on this servant. But make sure you know that the sin that he carried was not his own sin because he was sinless, Isaiah tells us. He had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Israel had turned away. We all, like sheep, have turned away. But this servant in Isaiah 50 says, I have not been rebellious. I have not turned away. And so their idol worship that God hated so much was pinned on this obedient one. Their unfaithfulness was put on this one who was completely faithful. Their violence carried by the Prince of Peace. Their failure to trust God, our failure to trust God, our lack of love, our sin and our transgression, all carried by this servant. He bore the weight of the burden that they and we should carry ourselves. But how does that work? I mean, if I can so easily hand over my burden of sin to another, where is the justice in that? Why don't I have to pay for the sin myself? How can someone else take that for me? Well, even this is part of God's design. In verse 10, Isaiah says, It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And he says the Lord makes, an, uh, makes his life an offering for sin. And he will justify many and bear their iniquities. That's in verse 10 and 11. So this great substitution was designed by God. He will declare the sinner righteous 
if that sinner no longer bears his own sin because the righteous servant of the Lord bears it for him and pays the price uh, of his sin by an atoning sacrifice. You see that exchange? It is such a great substitution. Because the sinless saviour died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just was satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Now there's a really cool image of this exchange in Isaiah 51. Have a look at that. Isaiah 51 verse 17. I love this. And it actually answers a question that I had uh, in the New Testament, but I'm sure you'll, you, you, might, you might see what I'm talking about. Verse 17, Isaiah says, Awake, awake, rise up, Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, you who have drained to its dregs the goblet that makes people stagger. So Isaiah likens God's wrath or God's uh, anger for sin, a little bit like wine in a, in, a, in a goblet or in a wine glass. And in his judgment, the people of Israel have drunk the wrath of God. So over in verse, uh, verse 6, no, verse 20, sorry, we'll go down to verse 20. They are filled with the wrath of the Lord, with the rebuke of your God. But what does God say? Why, sh- why should they wake up Jerusalem? Verse 22, this is what your sovereign Lord says, your God who defends his people. See, I've taken out of your hand the cup that made you stagger. From that cup, the goblet of my wrath, you will never drink again. How good is that? Let me take that for you. And wasn't there someone in the Garden of Gethsemane who said, Lord, take this cup from me? That's the great exchange. The Lord, through his righteous, crushed servant, takes the cup for sinners. Word number five, after being crushed and carrying our sins... He will conquer. He will be the conqueror. Remarkably, death will not be the end for this servant. So we'll go back to Isaiah 53 and verse 10. And we read halfway through verse 10. Though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And verse 11, after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. I just imagine, you know, 700 years before Jesus, Isaiah's there and he's got his wife and his kids. And he's saying to his wife, "Um, listen, I've just been working on my latest prophecy. You know, the Lord says, oh, there's going to be this servant and he's going to come along and he's going to die and then he's going to rise again. What do you think about that? How's it sound, Lord? Uh, how's it sound, wife? And uh, I'm sure that she would have said, what are you on? Because dead people don't rise again. But this one who makes himself nothing will be exalted to the highest place. And the death of the servant is like 
like winning a battle, like a king going off in those days and annihilating the enemy and bringing home the spoils of war. He will divide the spoils with the strong, Isaiah says. This servant will succeed. He will be raised and lifted high and highly exalted. You'll see that in chapter 52, verse 13. My servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. In the same way that many people were appalled at his horrific appearance, many nations will be amazed by his exaltation. Everyone will be gobsmacked by this all-conquering servant. Kings will shut their mouths because of him, chapter 52, verse 15. They're speechless. They don't know what to say. They have never seen this before. No one has ever heard of this sort of thing happening before. For what they were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. He's going to be a conqueror. And see number six, the servant will remain confident in the Lord. He'll be confident in the Lord. Imagine your dad saying to you, have I got a job for you? It's quite dangerous. You're going to die, but that's okay because I know how to do CPR. I'll bring you back. Are you going to trust him? But that's the difference between your dad and my dad and the father of this servant. You see, the father is the Lord, the Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the Mighty One of Jacob, the one whose salvation lasts forever, whose righteousness never fails. The Almighty is his name. To the servant he said, I have put my words in your mouth and covered you with the shadow of my hand. I who set the heavens in place, who laid the foundations of the earth, and who say to Zion, you are my people, you can trust me. And therefore, this servant of the Lord did trust his father. Unlike all who came before him, Unlike the kings of Israel, unlike the priests, unlike the prophets, unlike the people, all of whom knew God, or they were supposed to know God, they knew about God bringing Israel out of Egypt with a strong arm. They knew all that God had done and said and all that God was for them, and yet they didn't trust him, but this one did. This one put his complete confidence in God. He committed himself to the power of the sovereign Lord. He knew how strong he was. He gave himself, he believed the word of the Lord. He knew how true he was. And he placed himself in the love and the compassion of God. Listen to his confidence in Isaiah 50 from verse 6. He says, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. It's amazing how many songs 
um, preach the gospel from Isaiah. And I know that one of our songs that we sang before, he set his face, the Lord set his face like flint. I will not be put to shame. So we've got six of the seas. The servant's going to be the comforter. He was called. He was crushed. He carried our sin. He was confident in the Lord and he is the conqueror. And the final C, the identity of this servant is revealed. And he is Jesus, the Christ. And we don't see that necessarily here in Isaiah, but it's easy to go to the New Testament and see that. Because in Acts chapter 8, there's this encounter where uh, a guy, and he's actually a Gentile, he's from one of the distant nations, and he is reading Isaiah chapter 53, but he couldn't work out who this servant was, just like we wouldn't be able to work out unless it was spelt out in black and white. And he says, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? And beginning with that very passage of scripture, he was told the good news about Jesus. This servant, who was prophesied 700 years before he was born, is Jesus Christ. So holding our binoculars up, firstly, we see that God himself will come and comfort Israel. And then we get a little bit more focused and we see that it's a servant of the Lord who will come and comfort Israel. And then we focus in on the Lord Jesus Christ. He will comfort Israel. He is the comforter. He will bring consolation to Israel. He will be the light for the nations. He is the one called by God. He was the one crucified who died and three days later was raised to life. He was the one exalted to the right hand of God. He conquered sin. He conquered death and is now crowned Lord of all. The Apostle Peter, who was one of the guys who knew Jesus the most, this is what he writes when he wrote a letter to, um, uh, to uh, tell of who this Jesus Christ is. In 1 Peter 2, verse 21, there's this passage that Peter writes, and basically it's word for word from Isaiah 53. There's at least four direct quotes here. So 1 Peter chapter 2, and from verse 21, about halfway through the verse, he says, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you, like sheep, were going astray. But now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. 
It's Christ. He is the servant. And he is the one to restore this broken marriage. To repair a broken marriage that's caused by unfaithfulness comes at great cost. Enormous cost. It takes unconditional love despite the pain and the hurt. It takes great compassion. The wronged partner needs to deal with their deep, deep anger at what's gone on. And it takes perfect forgiveness. And it takes so much more to repair a a marriage between a husband and a wife where there's been unfaithfulness. But this passage today has been about God and his people, between God and you. Jesus did all of that for you, to bring you to God. His unconditional love, despite the hurt and the pain, he showed you that love, that great compassion that he has for you. He has dealt with that deep, deep anger, the wrath of God that needed to be dealt with, and he has perfectly forgiven. But he did one more thing that no spouse needs to do for another. Jesus laid down his life as an atoning sacrifice to bring sinful people back into relationship with a holy God. So in Isaiah 54, where we started tonight, we see three pictures, three beautiful pictures of what a restored relationship with God will look like. Sing for joy, says Isaiah. Burst into song. Because this is what your future glory will look like when the servant triumphs and is exalted. And the three pictures are these. It'll be like a wife rejected for a short time but called back because of the Lord's deep compassion. It'll be like a city that's been devastated by the mother of all storms. But God will rebuild its ruins and not just with concrete and brick but with precious, stu- uh, precious jewels, even that lapis lazuli, whatever that is. And the third picture, it's like a woman who's never been able to have kids. She's barren. But God will bless her so that she can give birth to such a big family that, guys, you've got to get out and do some renovation. Now, some of these pictures, some of this was fulfilled for Israel. The Lord did bring the exiles back into the land, but it's only a partial fulfillment. The, the, the perfect fulfillment is for us too, one day in the future, when all sin is dealt with, all transgression is dealt with, and this world is put right. Now, there's one final C that I have for you tonight. If you have heard this good news, How do you respond? Jesus has done all of this for you. And maybe you recognize that you are the unfaithful one, that you haven't lived the way that you ought to have lived. 
if that's you, or maybe you hold on to pain in your life, then the final C is what you do about it. The final C is how you respond. And that's in Isaiah chapter 55. And I'm not going to tell you what the word is. You will, you will work it out easily for yourself. It's verse 1. I'll just read a couple of verses. Isaiah says, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend your money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. This is the servant speaking. This is Jesus speaking. Come to Jesus. Listen to him. Let him carry your unfaithfulness. Let him carry your pain. This passage just reminds me so much of what Jesus said in the New Testament. Come, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to the fountain of life. Come to the bread of heaven. Seek the Lord while he may be found, verse 6. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them. Let them turn to our God and he will freely pardon. This last come is an act of repentance. Come to Jesus. Leave your sins with him at the foot of the cross and he will freely pardon you. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we thank you for this good news that no longer do we need to bear this sin ourselves, but that Jesus willingly came and took it for us. Lord, help us to know just how badly we have treated you. Help us to realize our sin. But Lord, help us then to give it to Jesus. He is strong enough. He is willing enough. He paid the price so that our sin can be dealt with completely. And Lord, we pray that you will help us to know the sweet, sweet pardon of sins forgiven and your mercy shown to us. And Lord, as we have been forgiven, help us to forgive others. Help us to go and to take this message of good news to others. Help us to live a life that is worthy of the calling that we have received, not giving our lives to another, not spending our time 
with things that do not satisfy, but giving ourselves to you. Oh Lord, we pray for your Holy Spirit to help us tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.